inconsequential conversation is what the dictionary says about chit-chatting, two people getting together and discussing things, let's say standing in the driveway or in the middle of a (laughs) podcast. So today, Bob Cudmore has some information about, I think you told me, Bob, eight articles, in particular eight articles that you have written over the last year for the Daily Gazette, and they also appear in the Amsterdam Recorder. That they do. And uh, they're historian tales uh, that I've been uh, telling now for the Gazette for over 20 years. And these stories sometimes get an extra life as a version of the historian's podcast. Um, Some of them have been podcasts. In fact, we have uh, eight that I'll go through at the beginning, starting with the Fulton County Courthouse, the Leather Man, the song Hallelujah, and a singer with Amsterdam roots named Jeff Buckley, Ukrainians in Amsterdam, the memories of Mike Mancini, a television show that came up to Fonda uh, to uh, record a history topic, the famous uh, French aristocrat and uh, fighter uh, on the behalf of America for the American Revolution, Lafayette, and then, if we make it this far, tools. A look at some uh, tools uh, that maybe your grandfather uh, had. So these were not the only topics I had in the weekly column, Focus on History, but I thought these are the ones that kind of stand up the best, Dave. You know, they they stand on their own. As you say, you were kind of, everybody who writes, you know, I say, yeah, I like the way I put this stuff together this time. And there's others that wind up in circular file G known as the trash can down there on the floor. So, all right. So we get to it. By the way, your articles appear every weekend in the Daily Gazette and the Amsterdam Recorder. That's where they can be found. You can find them in the paper, paper, online, and the e-editions of the papers as well. But let's go get to a topic here. One of my favorite topics in the past year, and it might have even gone on before that, and it was a twofer. It's been a column, and it's also been a uh, an episode of the Historian's Podcast, and that is Robert Best talking about the Fulton County Courthouse. Uh, Robert Best uh, was an attorney, or is an attorney. He's uh, still with us. He lives down in Florida. He's retired. Uh, He retired in 2006, and he was a judge at the Fulton County Courthouse for many, 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 many years. And before that, he was district attorney in Fulton County and uh, worked in the courthouse there, uh, you know, when he was district attorney. And the uh, important point about the Fulton County Courthouse is it's old. It is the oldest uh, still existing courthouse in the state of New York. And uh, Robert Best has put out a booklet called Everything West of Albany in 1772. Not a very descriptive title, but what he's getting at, that it was in 1772 that they built this courthouse and it handled cases west of Albany. And it wasn't much more specific than that. Um, There wasn't much settlement in, in terms of European Americans. I mean, certainly the Mohawks and Oneidas and so forth were here, but they didn't uh, subscribe to this particular court system. But when they put put up the Fulton County Courthouse, it covered a big uh, area. Uh, Judge Best said 
you know, he had this long time when he served as a judge there. He said, holding court in that building was just a habit with me. It was there before I was elected, and I hoped it would stay after I was elected. It was like a movie scene from an old movie of what a courthouse looks like, and it still does. That's what he said about the courthouse. And I always like to bring in a, a movie topic because I know, Dave, you enjoy movies. I'm sure there are, I can't think of any of them, but there are these great uh, courthouse movies, you know, look like probably they were, they could have been filmed at the Fulton County Courthouse. I've never, well, I've never seen the inside of that particular courthouse, but I've certainly seen enough movie sets. One that comes to mind offhand is, I hope I've got this uh, straight, trying to remember all the movies, about 1960 with uh, Spencer Tracy called Inherit the Wind. Mm-hmm. It was about the, uh, was it the Scopes trial? <clears throat> well, there was a Scopes trial. Yeah, and yeah. yeah I'm not sure that's the movie, but yeah, that was the man who promoted the ideas of Charles Darwin about evolution. And it was a trial because there was a religious argument against it. Maybe we're missing the point here, Bob, by mentioning Perry Mason. We all grew up with Perry. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, Perry Mason. Well, the um, Fulton County Courthouse is not huge. Uh, It's a a substantial building uh, for the community it's in. Because I have other topics to move on to. And this is one of my favorite topics of the year uh, that we had with the headline, Leatherman, and the lead sentence, What's it like to be the boss's son? And Rob Carell uh, talks about uh, that question and more. And he wrote a memoir called Learning to Be a Leatherman, a Rite of Passage. You weren't the boss's son, were you, Dave? No, no, never never been close, as a matter of fact. That. Unless, of course, you want to consider your childhood as, you know, paying attention to what your father had to say. Well, that could be. Um, and my father was not a boss either. Uh, but anyway, it's like the other side of the coin or the other side of the fence. Ron Carell it was a manufacturing kind of job that they were involved in manufacturing uh, products uh, for female uh, handbags and shoes uh, out of tannery. Uh, Ultimately, they had one in Gloversville. Uh, And that's what the Corrells did for a living, and they they owned the the business. I guess what I'm trying to drive at is that my dad worked for the carpet industry, but he was nowhere close to owning the business. But... He was um, kind of a significant part of it. He was the one of the guys, and they were all guys at the time, or almost all, uh, who wove the carpets. Um, Rod uh, Corral, I guess a little confusing in that he has, this is descended from two leathermen. Uh, one is Herman Lowenstein, who started the glove company, or not, it wasn't a glove company, the leather company in New York City back in 1893. And then there was um, Rod Carell's father, who was Rudy Carell, and Rudy changed his, well, Rudy Carell started going by his mother's maiden name, which was Carell as opposed to Lowenstein. So it makes it a little confusing, but ultimately it was the Corrells who uh, created this 
uh, leather business. And Rudy also was pretty much focused on New York City. He did some manufacturing upstate, in particular in the Gloversville, uh, but he had a New York City showroom to display colorful leather shoes and handbags to manufacturers and retailers. And that's how the business went for a good many years. Um, ultimately, as happens, Mr. Lowenstein passed away, uh, Rudy Carell passed away, and um, Rod Carell uh, took took over the business. But by the time he took over the uh, business, uh, let's say the late 1960s, getting into the early 1970s, the business was failing. Rod Carell uh, did a phased withdrawal from New York City. He had all these employees in New York City, maybe 30, 40 of them, at this showroom. And he's, he came to conclude soon after he took over the business that he would have to make one of those tough boss's son decisions. What's he going to do with the people in New York City? Well, ultimately, he just eliminated their jobs. He gave them an offer to come up to Gloversville to work, but that wasn't done. And so I, I could tell that that really sort of bothered him, that he had had to do that. And eventually, another company bought out uh, the Lowenstein firm that was making the leather that was used in the handbags and the shoes. And uh, Rod Carell moved on to other things. Uh, he, he apparently uh, had a great connection with Yale University down in New Haven. Went back to Yale at, you know, in a more advanced age and uh, started to become kind of a, an advisor to other people who have small businesses. Uh, Rod said, I learned how to build a group that trusted one another. That was um, a big problem he found when he was the boss's son. And then when he became the boss after his father died, it was, um, you know, it was, it was just hard. He was uh, not popular. and <laughs> I think he wanted to be popular. Everybody wants to be popular, Bob. Well, some more than others, I think. Yeah, but Rod, Rod really comes across as a very good good person. And I've had probably a lot of reaction to that particular uh, column and that, uh, that podcast. Uh, on, going on to number three, we're, we're just rolling right along here, Dave. In number three uh, on the hit parade is the Hallelujah Connection. I think we discussed this once before, but I wouldn't be surprised if you didn't remember. Why would you? Uh, but hallelujah is a prayer word, uh, both the sacred to Jews and Christians. Um, and hallelujah is also a, a song. There's the hallelujah chorus that Handel wrote. And there's also hallelujah, which was a popular song of sorts. It wasn't immensely popular, but it's had sort of this long life uh, in the media. Uh, Hallelujah was written by Leonard Cohen, who was a songwriter uh, from Canada. Uh, and it's kind of a hard song to sing, and not that many people do a great job with it. Leonard Cohen does. 
um, Katie Lang does. You know Katie Lang, Dave? Ever hear? Oh, yeah. I know. I know the name. I don't think I could identify a particular song. Well, well, she's a Canadian folk singer. You know, kind of a large person and powerful voice, and she does a great job with Hallelujah. But they say that a man named Jeff Buckley, and I'll try to make this one short, wrote or or not? I shouldn't say wrote performed one of the best versions of the Hallelujah as a song. Uh, it, it came out in, uh, let me see, so I think in the 1990s. Yes, he put that out in 1994. And his name was Jeff Buckley. And Jeff Buckley was the son of Tim Buckley Third, who was a native of Amsterdam. So I finally have the, the local angle. Uh, Tim Buckley Third spent his early years in Amsterdam and Fort Johnson. Both Tim Buckley III and Jeff Buckley had sort of unusual lives. Tim Buckley uh, had uh, problems with drug abuse and so forth. Jeff Buckley, and it doesn't sound like it's, it sounds like this could be fake, but apparently he just went swimming in, I think, the Mississippi River, and he had his clothes on, and he and he drowned. He got caught in the undertow of a of a powerboat. That's the story of Jeff Buckley, and Hallelujah. I was just thinking back to Katie Lang for just a second. I think the term Bob is belt one out. Oh, she can belt it out. That's that's for sure. You know, some people really belt out Hallelujah, and I think Katie Lang is the is the real belter there. I mean, yeah, yeah. She, she so, so, something to do with your belt expanding. I think so. I guess so. And we're, we're looking at uh, columns which I've written in the past uh, year, 2022, and we did a couple of columns on the subject of Ukraine because, of course, 2022 was the year of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the ongoing war between uh, Russia and uh, Ukraine. And what I covered or what we dealt with was the Ukrainians in Amsterdam, because as an ethnic group, Ukrainians were very familiar to me. Where I grew up in the East End or on Reed Hill in Amsterdam on Pulaski Street, we were right next door to the St. Nicholas Ukrainian Catholic Church, uh, the organization that built the church uh, formed in 1907 with uh, 26 members from Amsterdam and other nearby communities. So there have been Ukrainians in Amsterdam uh, since that time. There are about 70 Ukrainian families in Amsterdam before World War One, And one of the Ukrainian immigrants uh, was my uncle, uh, Peter Segan. He came to America and ended up marrying my, my mother's uh, sister. So... We're, I mean, having a Ukrainian aspect, and you might say, well, what is, what is it, the Ukrainian style, or what is what is different about Ukrainians? One thing, Dave, they make these tremendous Easter eggs. Have you ever seen them? Are they the ones similar to the Russian, where you put one egg inside of another, inside of another? Well, no, it, well, that could be, but that's more of a Russian thing, I think. But what the Ukrainians do is just decorate the heck out of, of an Easter egg. They make really beautiful Easter eggs every 
uh, every spring. Oh, I, I think I get it. Well, seeing some of the pictures coming out of Ukraine these days, right? Everything, when you see a peaceful scene and they're not showing the war, they've got lots of lots of color yeah. in their lives. I get it. Well, we're, we're uh, dealing with topics that um, appeared in Focus on History, my column in the Daily Gazette and Amsterdam uh, Recorder, uh, which you know, some have lived as topics on the Historian's Podcast, and we might make uh, others into topics on the Historian's Podcast. We're doing this in an order. Or we're up to number five now, and those would be the uh, memories of Mike Mancini. Uh, Mike Mancini was a firefighter in uh, Amsterdam. He became battalion chief. We got to know him uh, after he'd retired from the fire department job because uh, Mike Mancini also worked at uh, the radio station where Dave and I worked in Amsterdam for 10 years, which uh, is uh, WVTL. Um, Mike Mancini was a, I don't know how he made this uh, logical leap, Dave, but he was a firefighter, but also an expert on oldies and doo-wop. Yeah, it falls into the category, Bob, of you want to do anything that you don't do every day. It could be. Yeah. It could be. Especially when what you do is can be quite dangerous. And he gave us, a, you know, an account of several fires that he recalled in his 37 years with the uh, fire department and other stories. He was a great trove of information about a certain era or time in uh, Amsterdam. Uh, He said the one fire he couldn't forget was the one in which he almost lost his life. That nasty blaze destroyed the Speedline warehouse on Front Street in the 1990s. An overhead door had burned off, giving Mancini and other firefighters access to the building. And they move forward, as firefighters do. And as they move forward, a propane tank exploded. There, Three more steps and I would have got it, Mancini said. The blaze was so intense that burning debris ignited nearby buildings. The cause was arson, Mancini said, uh, but the case took four years to prosecute, but a conviction was finally secured. So I would have to say uh, Mike Mancini had a very interesting life. I recall some of your on-the-air conversations with him, and it always, as soon as, as, soon as you got into it, say, yeah, you're, you, were, you were hung with it, so to speak. <laughs> That's true. The number six um, topics that we picked out from Focus on History uh, during the um, 2022 is a visit to the Mohawk Valley by a film crew from Who Do You Think You Are, which is one of those national family history television shows. Well, it turns out that actor Nick Offerman, who appears in that show, I believe, has an ancestor or has ancestors in uh, really in the Amsterdam Johnstown area. The television show started its odyssey in Albany, but ultimately moved up to the old courthouse in Fonda, uh, which is uh, has a Department of History and Archives for the for the region. 
uh, headed by uh, Kelly Farquhar, who frequently uh, joins us on our various history projects. And they um, did filming and uh, talked to Nick Offerman and showed a lot of Mohawk Valley scenes. Uh, researchers traced his roots to a Mohawk Valley couple, Bartholomew and Eva Picard, and their grandson, Joseph Maybe. Now we're getting down to number seven on my a list of eight here uh, from the Focus on History column in the Daily Gazette. This column is about the Marquis de Lafayette. It's not the first time he's appeared in one of our columns, or and this is also a column that became a, a podcast uh, with uh, our good friend Jim Kaplan of the Lower Manhattan Historical Association, who has added Lafayette to his, I don't know, repertoire of people from the uh, era of the American Revolution uh, that he studies. And Lafayette was a wealthy French aristocrat whose father had been killed by the British in the Seven Years' War when young Lafayette was only two. Lafayette grew up hating the British, and uh, he grew up to fight alongside George Washington during the American Revolution. Lafayette played a key role in the British defeat at Yorktown, Virginia in 1781. And during his time in America, uh, Lafayette visited many people, and he even came up to Johnstown, Johnstown, New York, and was entertained by the families of Jacob and Thomas Sammons. Fast forward back then to 1824, Lafayette is getting on in years, but for example, George Washington has passed away uh, some 20, I think, four years before. But uh, Lafayette is invited to uh, come and tour America by the uh, current uh, president then, who was James Monroe. And Lafayette knew Monroe because both of them had uh, served with George Washington in the Revolutionary War. So Lafayette's out touring America, and the last part of his tour he takes on the Erie Canal, which is being completed in upstate New York. And here's Lafayette on a packet boat uh, coming down, the boat being pulled by mules or horses or whatever. And coming the other direction are the the friends, the Salmons uh, family, uh, who knew Lafayette from the days of the Revolution, and they really wanted to, to see Lafayette, uh, Thomas and Stimian Salmons. Uh, so it turned out they were going to cross paths at Schoharie Crossing, which is where the uh, old Erie Canal crossed the Schoharie Creek, and there's a historic site there called Schoharie Crossing. And eventually, to make a long story short, uh, they have them have the meeting. Thomas uh, Sampson and his uh, son uh, Simeon. Sam, I'm sorry, I said Samson. Uh, Salmons was their was their name. Uh, they met, and in fact, uh, Thomas and Simeon even came on board uh, Lafayette's uh, packet boat, and uh, the captain wanted to move on. But uh, Lafayette said, no, no, may we, he wanted to stay and, and talk to 
of the Salmons. Here's a quote from an old history book. Mr. Salmons, a boat was at the crossing when the packet conveying the illustrious Frenchman bore down upon it, decked with streamers and evergreens, and even the harnesses of the horse were bristling with flags. A jubilant crowd was on the towpath, horseback and on foot, kept abreast of the coming boat. Salmons was exhorted to hurry across the uh, creek and get out of the way of nobility, which he did, but then he went on the boat with his old friend uh, Lafayette, and uh, the captain wanted to move on, but Lafayette said, no, I want to talk talk more to them. Uh, our Again, our friend Jim Kaplan is uh, researching this story, and uh, he and others hope to have a um, memorial tour. It would be two, to observe the 200th anniversary of Lafayette's tour of America, and they're hoping to uh, do that in the in the coming uh, years. You can read about that in the Focus on History, but also you'll find uh, an account that Jim Kaplan wrote on this topic uh, located in uh, the New York Almanac, which our friend John Warren uh, puts out about New York State history. And I think we'll have just about enough time to do the last of the uh, eight topics which I originally uh, set out here. And this is the uh, topic about tools. Outdoorsman, historian, and educator Donald R. Williams of Gloversville says he owes a lot to his grandfather, John Whitman. Whitman was a carpenter, Adirondack guide, and farmer up in the Adirondacks. And Williams said, I inherited all my love of the Adirondacks and my love of tools and all those things from my grandfather. Uh, Williams' latest book uh, is a hefty volume with plenty of pictures called Grandfather's Tool Chest. And the uh, object that I like bringing up from the um, book, The Tool Chest, he's got pictures of all these things, one of them showing this odd-looking contraption with, um, let me see, a, sort of like a stick and then something in the in the middle of it. And you can't, well, what, what could that have been? And what it was was a device to fluff up a feather bed. I don't know about you, Dave, but I don't think I've ever actually slept on a feather bed, but this was used to fluff up the feather bed. No, I have not slept on a feather bed, but it sounds cozy. Well, it is cozy, and it, but it can also be kind of crummy, I would think. You know, they get kind of <laughs> worn and so forth. So those are the eight topics. We had other topics that we I wrote about during a 2022. We don't have uh, time to get into in any uh, detail. Uh, one was about uh, my late uh, cousin, uh, Myrna Cudmore uh, Hawthorne, who died this year. Uh, in 2022, at the age of 95. And her, the class she was in at Amsterdam High really had, uh, you know, a lot of uh, uh, well-known students, you know, in the Amsterdam area. There was Richard Ellers, who became a journalist at the Cleveland Plain Dealer. There was businessman John Tessero, 
there was Roger Bowman, who ended up uh, being a, a major league uh, pitcher for the New York Giants and the Pittsburgh Pirates. So 1945 alumni of Amsterdam High uh, proved that they were they were fine folks. Focus on History is appears every uh, Saturday or every weekend in the Daily Gazette newspaper and also the Amsterdam Recorder. We also uh, welcome your uh, donations. I haven't set it up yet, but we're going to have an, a new campaign in 2023. And by the way, 2023 will be the year where we do the 500th episode of the Historians podcast. And we did some calculations, and I think that's going to take place on the 10th of November. That's the Historians podcast. Thank you, Dave Green, for joining us on this little journey. No problem, Bob. And you've been listening to the Historians podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Please consider making a donation to the Historians podcast yearly fund drive. You'll find the link to our GoFundMe campaign and an explanation of how to donate by mail on our website, bobcudmore.com. Thank you.